is curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Good evening, Curious Human. And Laura and I have been talking back and forth, sharing ideas on Twitter, which evolved into email threads that then led to this podcast conversation. She's a crazy smart ex-Googler, a talented writer, and more recently a part-time neuroscience student. We bounced between topics that really resonated with me, including time anxiety, why we don't tend to take curiosity seriously as adults, a powerful technique for personal growth that she's been working on called mind framing, and her decision to leave Google to go back to study neuroscience at King's. All right, that's all for me for now. I'm going to go jump in the sea. And in the meantime, please enjoy this juicy conversation with the lovely Anne Law. So I'm here with prolific maker, writer, ex-Googler, and part-time neuroscience student, Anne Law. Um, and based on what we've just been talking about, I've got a sense that this conversation is going to bounce around quite a lot. But I'd like to begin with uh, the question I usually ask, which is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know that exceptionally, but I, I was very curious as a, as a child. I... Uh, also tended to become obsessed with the topics I was curious about. So I, I didn't have enough of just like asking a question and getting a vague answer. If I became interested in something, I needed to read all the books, to learn everything about it, and then to read about the people who wrote the books. So uh, yeah, I had this uh, bit of um, an obsessive personality when it came to curiosity. And uh, what's an example? Okay, one thing I was very passionate and curious about were dinosaurs. <laughs> so I learned, which probably was easier at the time than it is now, but I learned all of the names of the dinosaurs that had been discovered up to this point. And I learned exactly how they're, you know, different, they had different types of skeletons. So how these worked, where the bones were, how many they, they had, uh, you know, how they took care of like, which a lot of it I realized as an adult was completely hypothetical. So actually, <laughs> I learned a lot of bullshit as a kid. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, uh, my, my bedroom was filled with books of dinosaurs and mini figurines of dinosaurs. And I had like this model that you can build. And yeah, that was an, an obsession. And then it became horses. So I did the same thing with horses. And then, be, yeah. So basically, I had these like long periods of time where I would become completely obsessed about a topic and want to learn absolutely everything about it down to the most ridiculous details. Mm, that's amazing. And did you have any favorite books or stories that come to mind? And I asked because I've been exploring this theory that part of our life purpose is in some way connected to the stories or narratives that resonated when we were younger. So maybe it's a dinosaur story or maybe there's a specific book or novel that, that stands out. It's, uh, I don't know if he's been translated to English. He probably has because he was very popular, but uh, he's called uh, Bernard Werber. I don't know how that would be pronounced in, in English, but he wrote a series of books about ants 
and about how they were actually super clever and uh, how uh, at some point they became fed up with us just playing with them as kids and like using our fingers to kill them and like just like destroying their houses, etc. And they decided to kind of like take over our world. And it's super well written. It's um, full of, uh, of like really good science actually, but he used that to write uh, this three-part novel. And um, the book is, uh, the, the story, the narrative is cut in many places with uh, parts of a fake encyclopedia that he created that's great. Okay, how do I translate that in English? The encyclopedia of absolute and relative knowledge or something like this. And it's just a bunch of, if it's been translated to English, you need to get it because I know have, having written, like, read what you, you write, you would love it. It's just snippets of random science from, you know, like from a thousand of years ago to today about absolutely everything, but that are all super weird and useless. And, uh, but that are fascinating too at the same time. So yeah, then I also bought that encyclopedia that he put together into a book. So yeah, he was one of, of my favorite authors and all of his books are like this. It's basically taking science and then creating a crazy story around it. And yeah, I used to not sleep and spend the whole night just like reading these books. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I had a fascination for Dorling Kindersley like, encyclopedias as well that were just filled with seemingly useless and ridiculous knowledge. And yeah, my brain just kind of hoovered that up. Um, so I, I read somewhere that you, you spent a lot of time obviously reading and writing novels when you were younger. Um, I was curious if you can remember what any of those were about and also how did that, that love of writing lead you into kind of the, your career path and the role at Google and now, and now what you're up to at Nest Labs? That's a big question. Yeah, uh, yeah big question. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I started writing pretty early. I would, you know, take notebooks and just like make up stories and uh, like, Probably like you know when I was when I started learning how to write basically, and when I, I was a, a kid, I wanted to be either a novelist or a paleontologist basically uh, because of the dinosaurs. <laughs> and I ended up working in tech, so nothing worked out. But <laughs> um, I uh, I I wrote novels uh, mostly, and uh, the first types of novels I was writing when I was much much younger, like probably like eight or, or nine were type of more like uh, fantasy novels. I, um, I love Tolkien and these kind of things. And they were complete ripoffs of the Lord of the Rings and these kind of things. Like literally the same story, but I would change the names and, and I thought it was the new novel. But, um, <laughs> but I love the part of uh, inventing new languages that would go for like, you know, each like, race in the, in the book and these kind of things. It's pretty nerdy and, and fun. And then later on, when I was a teenager, I also kept on writing novels. But what I really liked doing at the time was taking uh, legends from different cultures and try to reimagine the story if it happened today. Uh, so, I don't know, uh, an example, one of them was taking the myth of Pygmalion, where there's this artist, like, you know, with the statue that comes alive and he falls in love with her, and taking that today and what would that look like? So that became a story with a plastic surgeon and a woman, and, you know, just like transposing that story. So, mm -hmm. and I did that with a few legends, and that's, that's what I, I liked writing about 
And uh, in terms of how it helped with my career, obviously the type of writing I was doing was not necessarily the most useful type of writing I would be able to use at Google. But uh, one of uh, my first roles at Google was actually in the content team. And I was managing a website called Think with Google where we had to publish lots of content there. And so I think the only thing it really helped me with is that really enjoying writing made me pretty good at it, made it quite easy for me. So I was able to focus a bit more on the, the overall strategy because the writing itself was never the big problem, basically. And, and I think in general, uh, being able to write properly is useful in so many areas of your life or, or, or work. So, so yeah, I do think it has been helpful. Not the type of writing, but the fact that I love writing was, has been helpful in my career. Mm, yeah, I feel like, I often feel like I don't know what I'm thinking until I start to write. And I think good writing is usually a sign of, of clear thinking. And it's such an, such an important skill to have. And I, I really love the sound of those books. I've, I've been devouring um, Stephen Fry's Mythos and Neil Gaiman's Norse, Norse Gods series recently. And there seems to be a theme of, of retelling or reimagining these kind of ancient myths and legends for the modern day. So maybe you were just before your time. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like I read this then. Like, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> um, and so something that I was curious about was... Um, was was it tough for you to kind of let go of the identity of working at Google when you when you moved on? And and I say that because when I moved on from my role as the founder of a startup, I found that um, that transition really challenging, and it was almost like I was kind of having to let go of this identity that I'd created for myself. And so I was just wondering how that transition was for you and how you navigated some of that uncertainty, I guess. Oh man, that's, yeah, it was hard. It was definitely really hard. Uh, it just was so easy before leaving Google because I don't know, just like going to parties, people ask you, what do you do in life? You're like, oh, I work at Google and they're like, oh yeah, that's great. And then you can just like talk about something else because, you know, they're like, okay, I know what it is. And, and that's cool. There's also, um, it, it becomes very comfortable having conversations because people start probably like, which is not true. It doesn't mean really anything working at Google, but people assume that if you work at Google, you're someone who must be smart and interesting. And so they will tend um, to automatically take your opinions more seriously. And once you don't have this, uh, you know, kind of like protection or whatever identity that you can hide behind, then you are left with just your ideas and your actual brain and your actual opinions and, and nothing to external to back them up. So it's been, um, it makes conversations more interesting, but also more challenging, but in a good way, right? Like you, you just can't hide behind that identity anymore. The other thing that was really hard was my mom because she, um, She's a, you know, I come from an immigrant family. My mom didn't have any money when she grew up. And so for her, when I started working at Google, it was like, you know, like if she made it in life herself too, like she kept telling, you know, to everybody, it, it was almost like, hey, how's your daughter? Yeah, she works at Google. Like no one has asked you this, but you're so proud that you just said. So for her, it's been really hard to not have that too as a kind of a, token of success or I don't exactly know how she was seeing it but it's it's been really good this year because it's been two years I left Google and I feel like 
the fact that I'm still doing well, I'm not homeless, I seem to be doing interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, she seems to finally have come around and, and having, you know, managed to cope with the fact that her daughter doesn't work at Google anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a, that's such an interesting question. And I, I guess for our, our parents' generation, that all they really want for us is that kind of um, success and security in a way that made sense when they were growing up. And I think back in when, when they were our age, it did make sense to get this job for life. And you kind of had this very linear career path that you could see the end of. And we live in a completely different world today, obviously, but I think it's, it must be so hard for a lot of parents out there being like, what the hell are my kids doing? Like they're giving up this, this great opportunity in law or medicine or Google or whatever the, whatever the jobs are. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there that can probably relate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Especially with our generation that it, like, you know, more and more people are doing what we did, uh, you know, quitting the comfortable job to, to, you know, pursue their, their own journey. So yeah, I think lots of parents right now are going to be in that position to have to deal with this. Mm, yeah, and you um you mentioned I read on your website that you're you're driven to empower makers to do their best work whilst keeping their sanity. And I guess I'm curious about the sanity piece in particular. And if you've if you've had any kind of experiences with with low ebb moments during this this entrepreneurial roller coaster and if so, what kind of helped you to navigate those? Yeah, it's interesting because we talk, if you do like a quick Google search, we talk a lot about burnout at work in the workplace, but we don't talk about it a lot when it comes to uh, founders, entrepreneurs, makers, freelancers, basically people who are on their own. And burnout has very often been defined as as something that is the result of external pressures that you're not able to manage very well. Uh, So for example, too much work, too many things to do, and you you say yes to everything for projects at work. But in the case of makers, there's no boss forcing you to do a thing or another. You're the the master of, of your schedule, of what you work, and this is... So you would think that makers wouldn't suffer from burnout because, you know, who forces them to work? They can, you know, do whatever they want. And But the reality is that lots of them go through this at one point or another because the internal pressure can actually be more destructive than any type of external pressure that you would get at work. And especially if you quit your job or uh, you have a family or even if you're, you know, just yourself or whatever, you want to prove to yourself and people around you that that was the right decision, that this is going to work out, and you end up working really, really hard, too hard sometimes. So, yeah, I've definitely experienced that. The other thing, too, is that instead of having this well-defined path that you would get in the workplace where you have this very clear ladder and, you know, these are the steps you need to take to get to the next level, and, uh, you know, it's almost like gamification of, of life. Um, when you're a maker, it's constant ups and downs, and you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. I, you know, I do consulting on the side uh, to, you know, pay the bills. And it's if I look at the amount of money I make at the end of the year, it's actually pretty okay, right? But it's like it's so irregular in terms of how much I make month to month. 
And even though I know I'm going to be okay in terms of money, it makes me very anxious every time I have a month where there's less money coming in, basically. And I've talked about it with lots of other consultants and freelancers and makers, etc. And it's a constant stress with like lots of people struggling to sleep and uh, lots of people struggling even like, you know, to eat or exercise or taking care of themselves because they become obsessed with the business, basically. So yeah, that's definitely something I've suffered from. I do suffer from anxiety still, and I do, uh, you know, I do my best to manage it. And talking about it and writing about it is actually a way for me to cope with it. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I feel like I'm not the only one, and and it's the case for lots of makers. Hence the mission and what I'm working on. Mm. Yeah, that's it's it's such a. Um... It's such an important issue to talk about. And when I was in, when I was back in London, I remember I felt like there were lots of founders that were kind of starting to share their experiences of burnout or of depression or anxiety. And I think that even just reducing the stigma and kind of creating a space where people can have an honest conversation is is so so important. And and people not feeling like they have to be projecting this image of. I'm doing really well. I'm like, I'm great. We're, we're crushing it. All of that, all of that kind of external um, narrative. And when actually on the inside, you're really, really struggling and you have to learn to ask for help or learn to get support. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And it's such a, yeah, it's such an important challenge to focus on. Yeah, um, so going back to, I wanted to touch on the, um, going back to the topic of curiosity. I, before jumping on the school, I really loved an article that you wrote that was called The Science of Curiosity. And so my question is, what have you learned about it that surprised you? And why don't you think that we tend to take it seriously as adults? Yeah, I, to me, the, the biggest learning is that curiosity can actually be relearned and cultivated and I think it's the same with creativity and with other things that people consider personality traits that are fixed. So you're like, oh, this is my friend. She's the creative one in the group. Or this is my friend. He's the intellectual one in the group or whatever. And it's it's quite fascinating how, and I don't know if it's because of our early education or our culture, but lots of people consider these as fixed, both in judging other other people, but in judging themselves too. And so this is why you hear people saying like, oh, I'm not really good at creative thinking, or you will also hear other people saying, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at this. Or, And so for me, what's most interesting is that everything in the research that has been done shows that that's not the case and that curiosity can be cultivated and that it can be done at any age and you don't have to necessarily, and it's great to cultivate it in kids, but it's something you need to keep on doing for the rest of your life. And it's a bit like a muscle basically. And Mm -hmm. so the more you exercise this, the more curious you're going to be, the more curious you're going to be, the more you're going to exercise your curiosity. And it's this virtuous cycle basically that anyone can start at any point in their life. So that's, that's what I thought was most fascinating. Mm, I love that idea of a curiosity muscle that we can build. And I I think for me, I I almost have the sense that we all have an innate sense of curiosity and creativity. And and actually the work or the muscle building is more just 
removing the gunk and all of the stuff that gets in the way as we're as we're educating and as we take on these cultural ideas um but it still takes work for sure because as kids and this is also what uh, one of the other studies that i read showed is that if uh, you do the same, uh, you know, they have this scale that measures your curiosity. And if you use it with kids compared to adults, it's just a fact that kids are more curious than adults. But instead of seeing this as just the natural way of things, actually like, you know, some hypotheses that are a bit stronger is that it's the way we're being educated at school that kills our curiosity because we're supposed to kind of like fit into a specific mold and follow a specific path and we have even a way of evaluating students which is based on right or wrong or on giving the the answer that you were supposed to learn by heart and so we're basically defining success through measures that don't include creativity at all so it's no surprise that then we create adults uh, that don't have the same curiosity that they used to have as kids even though I agree with you it's in everyone has it yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was saying to a friend yesterday that I, I realized a lot of the people that I'm close to went to weird schools. Like they didn't go to traditional schools. There. They went to Montessori schools or Waldorf schools or, or like home schools. And uh, yeah, it's, it is, it's a really interesting question and, you know, how we can begin to change that. Um, so this is quite a good segue into something that you've written about in a research paper, I believe, that you call mind framing which from what I could understand, it feels like a, a unique and kind of accessible theory for holistic human maturity in a way. And it seemed like you were combining self-authorship, growth mindset, which we've just been talking about, and something called metacognition. Could you briefly define those terms for listeners who might not be familiar? And also how you kind of put this mind framing into practice yourself? Yeah, so the basic premise of mind framing is that mind frames are not fixed. So very similar, as you say, as what, you know, the conversation we just had about curiosity and that any mind frame can be shaped uh, for you to achieve the goals that you want to, to achieve. And so, and that's a continuous process of learning and growing and exploration. And so the three mind frames I focus on in this paper is, so the first one is growth mindset, which is probably the one most people are familiar with. Um, so it was um, coined by Carol Dweck, and basically she compares people having a growth mindset to people having a fixed mindset. And in the growth mindset, people think that anything can be accomplished with hard work, anything can be learned, and um, any experience in life is an opportunity for self-growth, basically. Uh, and in a fixed mindset, people will think that they have their current abilities and they will spend most of their time and effort on making the most of those fixed abilities. So they're going to think that, for example, I'm good at this, I'm good at that. How can I build a career around this? How can I uh, make sure that as many people as possible notice that this is my thing and this is what I'm good at? And they will not spend as much time trying to grow and explore and maybe like, you know, discover new things that don't fit uh, this mindset that they have and the, the vision that they have of themselves. So that's growth mindset. And I think having a growth mindset is extremely important for anyone that wants to learn new things and, you know, who wants to improve and who wants to become a better version of themselves. The second one is self-authorship. 
So this one I find really interesting, especially living in the world where we have so many sources of information and so many trends, etc. kind of like telling us what's the right thing to do and which direction we should take our life to. So self-authorship is the deep belief that you're the author of your own life and that, of course, you can inform yourself. You can use all of these sources of information as you know, just like material to feed your thoughts. But ultimately, you are the one writing your own life and you have also the complete power to to shape it. So it's it's really believing that you can define who you are outside of what society think who you should be. So that's the second one. And the third one is metacognition. It's a fancy word, but it really just means learning about learning, thinking about thinking. So instead of just learning something or thinking about something, it's kind of like taking that step back and trying to understand how your mind actually works, how you learn, and how the way your mind works impacts the way you learn and the way you see things and the way you see the world and the way you remember things. And it's the science in itself. There are researchers that dedicate their whole life about metacognition. And I think that for anyone who wants to grow and improve, it's very, very important to, instead of just looking at the material and learning new material, taking that step back and think about how am I engaging with this material? What does it really mean to me? How is my mind shaping my view of this material and how it's going to impact my life? So that's the third one. And these are the three mind frames I think are the most important for personal growth. Mm. Yeah, it's so, it's so powerful. And the metacognition piece in particular, kind of going back to our early conversation, it feels like the one thing that schools really should be teaching us is this, this learning how to learn because all of the information or almost all of it is now publicly available online. If you know how to, how to Google, it's really just the process of, creating that structure and that curriculum for yourself and the, and the desire to learn as well, that I think is, is really going to be sought after in the coming years. Um, so on, yeah, I, I suppose on that note, um, another place that I really loved was this idea of building your own mental gym. And something I've been thinking about is I, I kind of, I read a lot of books and I'm sure lots of people read all this stuff online, but it, it's almost like that knowledge is, sometimes hard to kind of put into practice. And so based on what you've kind of learned about how the brain works and, and, and all this kind of stuff that you've been reading, how might readers go about kind of putting some of these ideas into practice and building that mental gym that they're in? Yeah. That's, um, that's something I talk about a lot and I wrote about quite a bit too, is that, so it's called the generation effect. And uh, there's also quite a few studies behind it that show that one of the best ways to learn something new and to make sure that you really internalize it is to generate your own version of whatever you read or whatever you learned. And this is why I write so much. Mm -hmm. I really noticed since I started writing a lot about what I read that I remember it much better I'm also able to explain it better to people, even in live conversations. And it's been super helpful all around to do this. So I would say that probably like whatever people learn and want to really try and put into practice first, maybe like write their own version of it and try and 
And, uh, you know, I wrote recently about the Feynman technique to like writing it in a way where you could actually explain it to a kid and anything you're not able to explain in simple terms, it probably means you didn't really understand it basically. So that's one thing. And then in terms of building a mental gym in general, um, I think, you know, a mental gym will look different for everyone because there are some muscles that you may kind of like, you know, flex more naturally than I would. And so they, you know, they will require more effort for me than they would for, for you. So what a mental gym looks like to you or your child is different. But I think what's really important is to take the time to think what it looks like to you. What are the things that are going to enable you to do your best work and to be the, to be the best person possible for the people around you? And so in my case, and this is also what I, I wrote about, you know, one super important thing that people don't think about enough is sleep. And so it's not, it's something that I put in my mental gym is to try and make sure that I have enough hours of sleep every night. Because if not, not only I'm not good at the work I'm doing, but I become cranky and I'm not a good, good human being when I didn't have enough sleep. So that's that, that one thing for, for me, but I have friends who put meditation in their, in their mental gym, for example. So it's really about trying the different things that you know make you better as a human being and, and in your work and making space for, for them. And then there are lots of books. I didn't write a lot about this myself because I think there's lots of books out there about this, but there are lots of books like, you know, James Clear, like about, you know, atomic habits, etc., that can teach people how to implement strategies, everyday strategies, basically, to make sure that once you've designed what your mental gym should look like, how to make sure that this is something that you do every day to take care of yourself. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. And, and for me, I'd say my mental gym recently has been combining meditation with sleep. I, I read the book by Matty Walker and I've been exploring this idea of yoga nidra, which is kind of like, it's called enlightened sleep. And it's like taking um, visualized power naps uh, in midday. And that's been the thing I've been experimenting with lately. Um, that sounds super interesting. Makes me want to give it a try. I'm really bad at naps. If I take one, I just don't feel like awake for the rest of the day. But like that type of nap sounds interesting. This is great. It's it's meant to give you about two to three hours of deep stage three sleep in twenty to twenty five minutes. Um, which is yeah, it feel you feel really good afterwards. So I, I definitely I definitely recommend it. <laughs> um, and the other thing I was interested in is. Yeah, I saw that you're studying neuroscience at King's College, and I was just interested. Was there like was like a moment or a decision that led you to want to go back to academia? And and what have you been getting out of the course so far? How's that been? Yeah, I uh, decided to go back to academia in the summer last year. So basically, I left Google. I started uh, a startup that didn't work out, and um, at this point, I generally didn't know anymore what I wanted to do with my life. And this is for me, that was that moment where I stopped trying to chase that linear version of what a career should look like, because I was definitely not going like, you know, up and <laughs> upwards in the traditional sense of the term anymore. And I felt really lost, to be honest. I didn't, you know, really know what I should do next not even what I should do next, but what I wanted to do next. So I took the time to think about what I was really interested in. And, and I really tried to put away any thinking about how is this going to make money? How does that make sense with my, my previous career 
path uh, is that, you know, does it even make sense? Basically, I really try to focus on what is something that you're just very curious about and you've been curious about for a very long time and that you haven't explored as deeply as you used to when you were a kid, just because you were focused on, you know, working and pursuing your career, basically. And the answer that I found after a lot of thinking was how the brain works. Like that's something that I've always been really, really curious about that I didn't really take the time to, to explore. And uh, so, yeah, I started looking up ways to, to learn that. And, and I know that for lots of topics, you can probably buy a bunch of books and, and learn lots of different resources. But I felt so out of my depth for, for this one that I really wanted to have more of a structured curriculum with, you know, proper teachers that would tell me where to start and what to do. And that would still give me the space to spend time learning through my own means and, and reading additional books, etc. But I still needed that. I felt like I needed that red thread to guide me and take my hand at least in the in the beginning, which is why I decided to start learning this in a more formal way through academia. And I looked online and I found this part-time program at King's that would let me still work on all of my other projects and still do my writing and, and still do my consulting while still studying neuroscience. So this is why I applied to this one. And uh, yeah, I was very lucky I got in because I didn't really have a lot of previous experience to start a master's in that field. And I've really been enjoying it so far. Mm, that's amazing. And yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the brain too. And it feels like this area that we, we really know so little about. It feels like we're just starting to learn how little we actually know <laughs> in many respects. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... Frontiers that you haven't completely explored yet. You know, there's the, mm. the infinitely big, infinitely small, and then there's the brain. <laughs> uh, so um just before we wrap up um if you were going to write a book this question just popped into my head if you were going to write a book or a novel what would it be called or maybe it's an existing novel that you've already started just out of interest all of the novels that i wrote were in french um but so one of them that's like it's my favorite like title that i gave to one of my novels, but it's a mix of two words. So the first word is, and I was looking it up just now because I couldn't remember, anamorphosis. I don't know if you know what it is, but it's um, it's basically like those, um, it's like kind of like a piece of art, but you need to look at it specifically from a, like, you need to pick a specific vantage point basically for it to look like what it's supposed to look like. I don't know if you've seen these in, in museums, but they look really strange and weird and a bit out of this world, basically. Um, because, yeah, if you can't, you can, you, you walk around them or or you look at them and, you know, from different standpoints, but you can only see what it's supposed to look like if you're standing exactly in the right spot and looking at it exactly in the right way. So that's anamorphosis. And then um, the this novel was about dreams, etc. So I mixed this with uh, Morpheus. So that was like, but in French, it sounds much better because it's just Morphe. So it's like Anamorphe, basically. And uh, yeah, that was a really weird novel that I, I wrote that it's like about this person that doesn't really know when they're dreaming or when it's real life, basically. Oh. So that's why that made sense for this one because she had to try and figure out what was the right vantage point to know if she was dreaming or if it was 
trip. And um, mm. yeah, it sounds very trippy when I put it this way, but, and I would probably like not today write one of my books like this because I'm more focused on nonfiction now, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. It's, That's that's a answer. <laughs> it's, it sounds really, really good. And I think the, the nonfiction books that I love to read tend to be, they're almost, they feel like they've been written by authors who are very good at fiction because they t- can tell stories and they have a great use of language. And I think that's what makes any book compelling generally. Um, that's very true, actually. That's one of the best compliments you can, you can give to a nonfiction book is to say that it reads like a novel. So mm-hmm. I... Yeah. <laughs> okay, so where, where would be the best place for listeners to find you online and to learn more about the work that you're doing and maybe talk to you on Twitter? Yeah, um, so since my Twitter handle is really complicated, I'm just going to <laughs> give the name of my website. It's uh, nestlabs.com, N-E-S-S-Labs.com. And there I have links to my Twitter and I have a link to my newsletter, Make a Man, where I write a lot about all of this stuff. Amazing, amazing. And um, for the final question, there's a, a line by the poet Rilke that I love, which goes something along the lines of, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. So with that in mind, what would be the question that you feel like you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? This is such a good question. Um, the question I'm living right now. Gosh, this is such a hard one. I'm like, it's it's weird because it's going to be a roundabout answer, but it's been actually really good for myself lately to kind of like stop asking me myself questions and just do the things that feel good. So I'm actually curious to know what is going to be my next question when it comes up at some point. So yeah, my question is what's going to be the next question. So that's quite roundabout, but it's very, it's actually been really enjoyable for the past couple of months to not spend so much time questioning what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and just doing it. And what was the second part of your question? That's a lot of like question in the same. <laughs> this, is, this is getting very, yeah, very meta. Um, and what question might you leave our listeners with, I guess? Uh, it could be the same one. What question, what, sorry? Would you, would you leave the listeners with or what question would you um, invite listeners to think about in their lives? Oh, okay. Um, I, actually, I was, I was asked a really good question in an interview yesterday that I, I really liked. Uh, I was like, it's a three-part question, but it's basically what could you do today to make life better first to yourself second to people around you and third to mankind and i thought it was a really good question yeah i love that um well we will wrap up the conversation there thank you thank you so much thank you Jenny. that was great <laughs> i hope you enjoyed this conversation It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter 
is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.